Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. All right. Welcome everyone to the Maximus podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cameron Sapa. And on today's podcast, I am super excited to have fitness expert, personal trainer and calisthenics expert, JT, uh, Jerry Texera. Uh, Jerry has created his own uh, personal uh, training program, calisthenics program and exercise routines called body weight strength. He has multiple YouTube and social videos, uh, educating everyone on how to maximize their strength training using only their body weight. JT is also a nutrition expert and helps plan meals programs for his clients as well. He is the co- also the co-founder of Carnivore Clothing Company and knows quite a bit about the facts and myths of meat-based diets. I have actually worked out with JT and consider him a friend as well. And so I'm super excited to have you on the show today. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Um, well, we kind of do this in two parts. Uh, the first part is uh, a little bit different than most podcasts in that um, we call it kind of making the man. Um, so that we can really get to know our guests, their backgrounds, their history, kind of uh, what made them the man and success that they are. So um, I love to dig in a little bit on that side of things. And in the second half, we can talk a little bit about actionable advice and kind of your masterclass on bodyweight strength training. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning? Um, tell uh, our listeners a little bit about where did you grow up um, and what was that like for you? Uh, so I grew up on a... Um on a dairy for the first portion of my life until like first or second grade. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we moved and spent the next, I don't know, until eighth grade uh, living in Southern California, not on a dairy. <laughs> and then we moved back uh, and I lived on a dairy from eighth grade until I graduated and went into the Marine Corps. Yeah. And so something that's probably worth mentioning, at least for this podcast is uh my dad was very successful with my older brothers and basically raising my brothers uh, and much less so with me. Mm. Um, my next oldest brother is nine years older than me. Mm-hmm. And, and then they're two years apart after that. So I basically have four older brothers and they're all a decade older than me or more. Yeah. And my dad was a successful business person mm-hmm. with a profitable dairy. And so my brothers were all raised with little league baseball and all that kind of stuff. And around the time I was born, business became bad. Mm -hmm. And my dad started losing a lot of money and didn't know to handle failure. Mm. And so my childhood was a lot different than my older brothers were. And, you know, they they went through a rough time, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old, but they were already kind of old enough to handle it in a different manner. And I was like five years old, six years old, seven years old. So my dad actually got into um, substance abuse to try to, you know, self-medicate and deal with, right. with failure. And so my childhood was pretty rough um, until eighth grade when my grandmother took me in. Mm-hmm. And that's when I moved back and onto a dairy. She owned a dairy as well. Okay. Um, and the big purpose for me moving back in with her was to have stability. When I was with my parents, um, I went to nine schools and I think we lived in like 13 houses. Wow. Yeah. 
we like we would get evicted from one house to the next. It, it was it was you know super bad. And uh, once I moved in my grandmother, there was stability there. So from eighth grade through high school, everything was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, I went into the Marine Corps, which was my first experience with physical training and with calisthenics. And throughout school, I was kind of uh, I would retreat to video games and books. I wasn't really an athlete. Yeah. Um. So so that was. I guess you're, you're the site, you're the psychologist, right? So you can tease out whatever you want from that. But I had like a lot of things to overcome mm-hmm. from my childhood that I'd never pieced together like that right. until I was, uh, you know, in my twenties and started dating and eventually met who, who would one day become my wife. Right. And I found that, uh, all the stuff that I went through when I was younger really did affect me. And it took me until I was in my thirties to really overcome a lot of that stuff. And so because the nature of Maximus, I think that's probably worth talking about. No, and absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, glad that you share that and you're willing to talk about that as well. Cause I think it's, it's, it's um, and this is exactly why we do this segment of the show. So many of our guests, um, you know, are great role models. I certainly consider you a role model uh, to, to, to men, both personally and professionally, uh, but they don't see the come up story, right? They don't see the making of the man. And, and, and often uh, I actually think most successful people that I know actually overcome uh, overcame a lot, uh, maybe in different ways, uh, in different paths. But I think it's worth noting the stories so that it provides hope and inspiration to people and that no matter what childhood that you had, uh, it is uh, surmountable. So uh, I, I'd love to kind of break apart some of the, the pieces of the story that you, you mentioned. Why don't we actually start on the dairy? Because uh, I think that's a really cool part of your story too, and that both your early and kind of middle childhood you spent on uh, you know, a dairy farm, um, which I think you know, not a lot of people have that experience. Can you tell us a little bit about how growing up on a farm uh, influenced you both growing up as a kid? And also, I'd, I'd love to hear how it uh, influenced your views on nutrition, because you kind of see literally how the, the sausage or the milk is made. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> when I was in high school, we had to take a health class, right, like mandatory. And so I remember coming home. And at this point in high school, I lived on my grandmother's dairy throughout eighth grade through, through high school, like I mentioned. And so I came home and I told her, hey, grandma, and at this point, she was probably 80, close to 80. And so I told her in in our health class, they were teaching us about like saturated fat and, you know, margarine and all that. Mm. And so I was like, they're saying that people should avoid dairy because the saturated fat, they should be eating margarine. And so my grandmother stopped me and she's all, honey, listen, she said, where is the milk come from? Mm -hmm. And I said, from cows. She's like, right. And God made the cow. Right. And, you know, very simple logic. I was like, yeah. And she said, okay, where does the margarine come from? And I was like, you know, a laboratory. (laughs) And she's like, okay, so we've been eating butter for a long time. So we're going to keep eating butter and you can let the idiots eat margarine. And like, it was very common sense for her, you know, like milk, cheese, eggs, butter, bacon. Like we, when I moved in with my grandmother every morning, so she, she would wake me up for school and I would get in the shower. And when I got in the shower, it was bacon and eggs. Mm-hmm. It was like, there's a Portuguese sausage called linguiça. Mm-hmm. It was linguiça and eggs. It, it was whole food. Yeah. Like if I ate cereal, she didn't like it. She's like, why are you eating cereal for breakfast? Mm-hmm. You know, I would tell her sometimes, oh, let me, let me have cereal this morning. But she was very old school. So it was like home cooked breakfast. I mean, at school, we would eat whatever, you know, at school, but it was like, pot roast and potatoes every night for dinner it was like you know when you think about corn fed 
Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, the people always talk about the farm boys in the Midwest. It's like mama's cooking and that's why they're, they're big like that. Right. Um, but there's some truth to that. So I grew up when I was at my grandma's house, it was always solid food. Um, and it was never like, if it was bread, she baked it at home herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, until she got much older after I joined the Marine Corps and then she just got into her nineties and didn't cook as much. And she had to be, you know, assisted with being taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I grew up with, with her instilling that in me. Right. And so, I mean, I remember being five or six years old and they're butchering a cow to put meat in the freezer for six months. And I'm running around playing and the, there's intestines on the floor. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> it was just normal chickens, like, right. Yeah swinging their heads off and stuff. <laughs> it was just no big deal. Right? right. And, um, so I think growing up like that and being exposed to that from a super young age, I never, I never contemplated, Oh, meat's bad for you or mm-hmm. animal foods are bad for you. You know what I mean? Like, right. so when the rise of the plant-based and vegetarian movement and all that stuff started to come up mm-hmm. from a common sense standpoint, and I'm, I'm not anti-plant-based. I, clearly we evolved as omnivores eating everything. So I, I don't at all think you shouldn't eat plants or plants are bad for you right. uh, unless you have a sensitivity or an issue with some plants. Um, but the anti-meat narrative never made sense to me just because my family's multi-generational dairy. And probably the key thing there is my grandmother died at 98 years old Amazing. and she was like always super healthy, looked way younger than her age. And my, my dad, for example, um, he's 76 now and always looked way younger than his age. And we're talking about a guy who drank smoke and did drugs mm-hmm. a lot yeah. over decades. And at 76 has never had a cardiac event. Mm-hmm. Like m- same thing with my mom. My mom passed away, um, but non-cardiac, non-cancer. My brothers are, one's almost 60. They're in their fifties. No one's had cardiac events, cancer. Yeah. And that's one thing we were all commonly raised on was like, we didn't eat fast food much. Right. It was like a once a week treat. We drank gallons of milk, shit mm-hmm. tons of butter. Like, like I said, pot roast, potatoes, you know, ribs, barbecue, like, and there's not really any chronic disease in my family. Yeah. Other than I have a, I have an uncle that passed away at 70, I think of lung cancer, but he smoked from time he was 12. Yeah. And, and so just in my experience with my family, it was, it was common sense. They're all healthy. They're all strong. And it's a great. Yeah, yeah. It's a great case study, right? Uh, it, it, it's, it's, and it's a great story to share too. Cause I, I think it's remarkable basically how much wisdom we've, we've lost, right? Like this whole like margarine versus butter debate. You know, if you just kind of go back to like what has worked for millennia, quite frankly, um, you know, I think it is common sense, but I can't tell you how many people I run into that, that are convinced that dairy is bad. And, and maybe there's some debate about, you know, uh, the quality with which dairy is raised and, and some of the nuances around that. But yeah, I think if, if the question is, what's the alternative, which are these very strange, uh, you know, milk alternatives, which are full of hydrogenated oils and margarine, right. obviously a great example of that. Uh, I think it's, I think it's unquestionable. Yeah. I think there's nuance to the discussion about nutrition. I think there's always nuance. And it's going to vary individual to individual, your lineage. There's, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, humans, people like to try to, especially on social media, say, well, all humans are identical and we should all eat the exact same species appropriate diet. And 
I definitely think that there's evidence that we're not all the same, you know, biologically there are differences. And so what might be ideal for one person may not be ideal for another person. But, you know, to your point, at the end of the day, I think at large, if you look at hunter gatherer societies around the world, they eat varying amounts of plants and animals, mm -hmm. but every single one of them eats plants and animals. Right. And all of them exhibit robust health and none of them eat processed shitty food. Yeah. So I think for most people, if you just avoid processed foods in general and you eat whole animal and plant foods, for the most part, you're going to have robust health, provided that you're also physically active and you do the other things that these hunter-gatherer populations do, right? They're not sedentary. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I, I think you could run the gamut from either some variant of carnivore all the way to being plant-based supplemented with meat. Mm -hmm. And I think you could probably be healthy. Um, yeah, and it's a but, good point. There, the, there are definitely cultural differences like uh, European and Middle Eastern folks have developed you know, the ability to process lactase, right. And consume dairy because they've probably herded and shepherded, uh, you know, dairy animals for, uh, you know, a long time. While obviously a lot of folks, uh, the majority of the East Asian population, for instance, is lactose intolerant, right. Can't handle right. it as well. And that that's pro probably a pretty recent last 10,000 years, uh, kind of genetic divergence that's happened. Um, so yeah, it, it's, 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 uh, I think it's a great, um, you know, example though, of, 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 how far when we get disconnected in a very civil, civilized metropolitan society, we don't know where our food comes from, or quite frankly, as you point out, what it takes to, you know, butcher food and, and process it, uh, we become, it becomes strange to us, even though, you know, literally our ancestors for the last 50,000 years uh, probably butchered their own food, right? Um, and had a great respect for animals. And it was kind of the circle of life, so to speak. Um, so the other thing I wanted to get into is, you know, you mentioned kind of going back on the dairy farm um, in eighth grade. Um, and, and obviously, you know, you had some of these familial um, issues to overcome. I, I'd love to hear kind of um, between kind of your teenage years up until you, you decided to go into the military, um, how you kind of coped with, with every, all the transition, all the change, all the, all the challenges that were going on um, as you were kind of becoming a man. Um, you know, I think that for, for whatever reason, I didn't have the damage, like I wasn't damaged to a point that it affected me and my functioning in any way that I realized mm. until I was in my twenties. Mm. Um, and I, I think maybe part of that is, so even though my dad had a problem with substance abuse, my mom also became an alcoholic. So it was, mm. it was really both of them. Right. Um, but my dad was also always a very nice, genuinely super nice person. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of grew up where I never hated my dad because he was this really nice man, right? He just happened to have a substance abuse problem, which made for situations where he didn't, he never, I was never physically abused. It was not as bad as the things that some, some kids have had to go through, but, and I'm sure you've counseled people that have had issues with substance abuse. And so the kind of things I dealt with, so like in third grade, we had the science fair at my school. And my mom worked, she was a hairdresser, so she had to work late. And my dad dropped me off the science fair. Mm -hmm. And so he's supposed to come back and pick me up at like 8 p.m. when it's over. And he forgot. And so I was at the school till 1.30 p.m., I mean, in the morning with the janitor. Yeah. And we're like calling my house, calling my dad, nobody's answering. And at some point, my dad apparently remembered and came to the school at like 1 in the morning. And I'm there with the janitor, who, thank God, didn't do anything to me, right? right, right, right. Um, so I guess it was more of a 
my dad was in and out, not always around. And when he was around, it was like absentee, even though he was there, it was kind of absentee. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that was more what I dealt with. And, uh, when I got into high school and lived with my grandmother, she was like 100% an angel among women. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what I accolades or whatever, however, I try to explain her as a person, it would never do her justice. Fair enough. So she was like the matriarch of the family. She had 20, 19 grandkids, like 40 great grandkids, Amazing. A, a huge family. Yeah. And my grandfather passed away when I was five. Mm. And so she took over running the business, rental properties. She, she ran, so she ran an empire, yeah. handled the business. She raised her kids. She raised multiple of her grandkids, mm-hmm. right? She never drank, never smoked. She lived right. She was like very spiritual, super intelligent. So I think her example mm. is definitely something that I looked up to. And I, and I honestly think she's why I kind of stayed on a straight and narrow. I never got into drugs. I never drank, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think not having a more active male role model, you know, teach me about integrity and about the importance of those types of lessons. Mm-hmm. I think that's when I got exposed to certain things like after I joined the Marine Corps and I was traveling and when I was in my twenties, that's when I made multiple poor decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually generally it was poor decisions to please like an employer, or a boss who was a male. Yeah. So way later, when I look back, I was like, I think that wanting to do well for that father figure right. is what got me into situations where in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, man, I should have just said, no, I shouldn't have done that. I got taken advantage of in that situation. You know what I mean? So, I, so for me, I really think through high school, I didn't have the negative, mm-hmm. like the negative experience that a lot of kids act out. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen for me until later. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to, that, you know, you have developed the insight now that you can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, and it's also a great illustration of, I, I really do think in terms of the psychosocial development of men, um, that we need both positive male and female role models. It sounds like, you know, you had that through your grandma who uh, sounds like a wonderful human being. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I actually think the, the most evolved and mature men, in fact, uh, embody some of the best qualities of the feminine. So like kindness and compassion uh, and nurturing, you know, is, is important in being a father. And I think we right, learned yeah. that, um, in fact, more prototypically from our mothers or grandmothers who... Uh, you know, naturally embody that through, you know, their, their feminine qualities. Um, in complement to that though, I do think, uh, you know, having a strong uh, male role model, whether it's father, cousins, uncles, coaches, teachers, psychologists, et cetera, is also important because obviously as a guy, you know, we need a template of how to be a man. Um, so I'd love to hear your decision in terms of deciding to go into the military when you became an adult um, and what that, taught you and how that influenced you as a man? So I, <clears throat> my grandmother was old school. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she actually did value education. She wanted all her grandkids to be doctors or attorneys. That was like the pinnacle for her, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but having grown up where I mostly raised myself, my mom would work late as a hairdresser all the time. My dad was out wherever. So I would come home after school and let myself in in like second and third grade. And I was home alone till like seven or eight o'clock every day, you know, mm. um, I didn't, I wasn't instilled in me to like do things right away, mm-hmm. get your homework done first, that kind of stuff. So 
the thing that I did develop that plagued me for most of my life until maybe the last three or four years was chronic procrastination. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really bad. Right. Yeah. And so um, I think that's the thing that probably damaged you more than anything else. So like when I moved in with my grandmother, mm-hmm. she wasn't used to the way that I was raised, you know, yeah. and she like I mentioned, being old school, she kind of looked at you as a grown man when you were like 13, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I moved in with her, she said, yeah. So she said, look, you need stability. You're going to stay with me. You're going to go to school here. And I think part of what kept me on a straight and narrow too, she said, but I'm 75 Mm -hmm. at the time we're doing with her. And so she said, you're going to be a good kid, which you are. She's like, you're going to be a good kid. You're not going to give me any problems or you're out. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I'm not going to deal with problems. I'm I'm too old for it. So, and then as part of that, she said, when you turn 16, you're going to want a car. Mm -hmm. She said, but I'm not buying you a car. You're going to work on on my property and I'll pay you and you save your money. And then when you turn 16, I'll match what you saved and help you get a car. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, in my mind, because I was a kid and my grandmother and grandfather had done well. And I'm thinking like, oh, she has plenty of money. She's not going to not help me. Mm -hmm. So when I was like 15, I got my first girlfriend. And Mm -hmm. so we're going to the movies and doing stuff all the time. And I'm spending all the money I'm making working on, you know, on her property. And so I didn't really save much. And so then I turned 16 and she's like, how much money do you have saved? And I was like, Oh, like two, 300 bucks. She's like, well, that's what I'm going to give you. So hopefully you can find a car with that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what am I supposed to drive for? You know? (laughs) Um, But so she would let me use her car if I needed to go somewhere sometimes, you know, like, but I didn't have enough money to buy a car. So sure enough, she didn't cave and I didn't get a car. Yeah. And so when I, the first car I bought, I turned 18, went into the military and bought my own car, you know, without any help. And when I was getting in high school, she said, you need to get good grades so you can get a scholarship mm-hmm. because even though you live with me, I have lots of other grandkids mm-hmm. and I can't pay to send you to college and not all them. Right. And she's like, so you need to do this. And then if you get a scholarship, I'll help you mm-hmm. with what you get in scholarship money. Maybe I'll do some sort of match to that, you know? Yeah. And because of my procrastination problem I had developed, Mm -hmm. I got A's and B's on like every test I took through every subject Mm -hmm. throughout high school, but I just never did my homework. Mm -hmm. And because in high school, unlike most college classes, they, they weight your homework pretty heavily. So I ended up graduating with like a Mm 3.0, you know, and uh, so my junior and senior year, I started applying to some schools. And my grandma's like, I'm like, oh, I got accepted here and here, you know, based on SAT scores. And she's like, well, what kind of scholarships they offer you? And I was like, well, nothing, because my grades aren't high enough. She's like, well, I don't know what you're going to do. You better figure it out. You know? <laughs> so she kind of told me, hey, this is what I said I would do. You didn't uphold your end of the bargain. I'm not going to help you, you know. So instead of being mad about it, I decided, OK, I got to figure this out. And I went and talked to all the recruiters, I actually borrowed a car and drove to the recruiting offices. Mm-hmm. And I went to the Navy, the army and the air force. Mm. And I walked into each recruiting office and I said like, Hey, what can the air force offer me? What can the Navy offer me? And, um, they kind of told me, here's what we've got, you know? And I, I never even contemplated the Marine Corps. Cause I'm like, Oh, those guys are crazy. <laughs> and all three recruiting offices were in a row in my city, like mm-hmm. door, 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 you know, in, in the shopping center. Yep. And I figured, what the heck, I might as well check and see what they've got. So I poked my head in to the Marine recruiter's office. And it was way different than the other. And I, looking back, it's 
a sales pitch. You know, I mean, they did a good job. But sure. so the recruiter, this guy, Staff Sergeant Mendoza, was just jacked, right? <laughs> he was like alpha male all the way. Right. And he's sitting at his desk and he's like, the desk is small compared to this guy. You guy's a beast. And he has this sniper rifle on the wall mm-hmm. and all these pictures from uh, Desert Storm and all that all over the wall. Yeah. And uh, so I walked in, I said, hey, I talked to the Army, Navy and the um, Air Force. But I figured, why not stop in and see what the Marine Corps can offer me? And the guy was super smooth. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, that's the wrong question. Uh-huh. And I was uh, asked him, well, what do you mean? And he said, it's not about what the Marine Corps can do for you. He goes, go join one of those other branches if that's all you care about. Mm-hmm. He's all, what can you do for the Marine Corps? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, tell me more, you know. <laughs> so I went in and uh, the guy ended up talking to me for several hours. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, I, I think this is what I want to do, but I need to think about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went home and I thought about it for a couple of days. Then I called him back and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm good. I want to be a Marine. Mm-hmm. And so I signed a letter of intent or whatever, you know, like, hey, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't old enough yet yeah. because I was only 17. I see. And so we kind of worked it out. I would leave for boot camp the day after I turned 18. Mm-hmm. And then once we had that, I knew it was like I could do it. You know, it was all mm-hmm. doable. Right. Then I went and talked to my grandmother and my parents and I basically said, hey, I'm going to go into the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was like, oh, no, no, don't do that. She's like, I'll help you go to college. <laughs> wow. She's like, I'll help you. And I was like, no, honestly, you know, I, I, that opportunity was there, but I didn't do what I should have done. So I'm going to do it on my own. Like I don't, and the thing is growing up, I had a lot of family that like distant cousins and things like that. They took advantage of my grandmother. Mm. Like they came around on holidays to get presents. They came to go, she would take them shopping at Costco and buy them all kinds of stuff, you know, that, yeah. but it was the parent. They only came around when they wanted something. Right, right. And so I grew up seeing her get taken advantage of mm-hmm. at times. And I knew I didn't never want it to be that way. Yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of the family used her. Like I mentioned, she's like the matriarch. A lot of the family used her. I'm down and out. I need a car and she helps them or, you know, mm-hmm. but these are people that are like, on drugs, not getting clean. And mm-hmm. she would enable them. Yeah, yeah. You know, she would break down and she would enable them. And so I decided, no, I'm going into Marine Corps. I'm going to do this on my own. I, I don't want help. Mm-hmm. And so I went in at 18, the day after I turned 18. And then throughout my life, before she passed away, I borrowed money two times for from her. Mm-hmm. And both times I paid her back. Um, you know, it's just from seeing other people take advantage of her. I never wanted to be that way. Right. Where does that sense of integrity come from? Was that was that just something that was always within you or, or maybe the contrast to seeing how other people acted and you're like, I don't want to be that way? Yeah, I think some of that, you know, knowing that she took me when things were rough at home mm-hmm. and she was very selfless. Like she did everything for everybody. You know, she, she just was that kind of person. And so I think seeing people take advantage of her, it really like it, it bothered me when they would do that. Yeah. And so I never wanted to, to be that same way. And I think part of it, you know, my dad being a certain way growing up, I never wanted to be that way. So I just, I mean, I never even tried alcohol till I was 21 and I went wow. through the Marine Corps and got out without having a single drink in my yeah. life. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I, that's such a good story too. Cause, because I think, uh, you know, some of, so much of, um, you know, what we talk about is having sort of positive role models, but I certainly think even negative role models can be positive if we interpret it as like, okay, this is the wrong path or the wrong thing to do. Um, and I want to be different from that. 
or uh, in the case of your grandma, you know, because she gave so much to you, you want to, you know, reciprocate um, from that and, uh, you know, give back and not take advantage. So, you know, I think that's, that's such a great um, illustration of no matter what cards are dealt to you, you know, you can, you can play them to your advantage and use that to become better. Yeah. And my dad and my mom both, I think I was 30, I can't remember the exact age, but I was in my thirties and they both cleaned up my mom mm -hmm. from being, you know, 40 year problem with alcohol. She quit cold Turkey. Wow. And so she, she passed away, but she got sober long before that. And then my dad's been so, you know, sober for quite some time. And so one of the other things is you've only got the parents that you've got mm -hmm, and sure. you can't change that. Yeah. So I hold no ill will. I never held it against them. I just let it go. Like it's, yeah. it's only going to damage me. You know, like I have an older brother that didn't let it go as easily. Yeah. And I think that was more of a negative for him than if he would have just let it go for sure. You yeah. know what I mean? And so um, my relationship now with my dad's decent. You can't get mm -hmm. your childhood back. You can't go back and make it the same right. as it could have been. Um, but yeah, when we talk it, it, everything's totally fine now. So I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for that, especially with my mom having died, I'm just thankful that there's no ill will harbored. There's no regret. You know what I mean? That's right. Well, I, yeah, I think that that grace and that graciousness is really important. Um, and I, I think is the hallmark of a mature man. Um, I'd love to hear your experiences, uh, you know, if you're willing to share some of it uh, about being in the Marines. Um, and for instance, do you do you recommend, um, you know, young men consider sort of military service? Or if not, do you think some of the things that you learn, such as discipline in the Marines can be can be cultivated or instilled in other ways? So, yeah, my experience um, with the military is was overall very positive. I think that if you so some people go into the military because they, they feel a calling and that's what they've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's somewhat similar to a police officer. I think, if, I think in my opinion, at least mm -hmm. to be a police officer, you should feel called mm -hmm. to law enforcement. I don't think you should say, I kind of need a job. So I'm going to go to the police academy because yeah. right? you're not going to be a good cop. Mm -hmm. I think that's something you have to want. And the difference with the military is you can go into the military and it's not like when you, when you become a police officer, it's, it's a career that you plan on doing till you retire for the most part, right? In the military, you can go in for four years. You can go in as a reservist. So you are essentially part-time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something you can do similar to college. You don't plan on going to school forever. Right. And when you initially go into the military, unless you felt called to that as a career for, for a life, mm -hmm. then the commitment is limited. Mm -hmm. um, but it, will 100% teach you to be self-sufficient and it will help you transition into being your own man mm. or woman for that matter. Obviously you can be a female in the military as well. Um, but it can take you away from whatever situation you're trying to get out of. If, if you, especially if you grew up where your family doesn't have the means to help you go to school, you don't have access to help and you feel like you're kind of on your own trying to figure out how to make it, mm -hmm. especially in the, where most men go into the military to the early twenties, which is kind of a time where there's a lot of self-discovery going on. Um, so yeah, I definitely think it's hugely beneficial in terms of teaching you discipline and how to work ethic, you know, how to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you really will accomplish more at an incredibly young age 
than most people have ever thought about achieving at a specific age. You know, like when I was 19, I got promoted to corporal when I was 19, um, which is a E4. So it's an enlisted rank, a few, few promotions up. And I, my job was nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare defense. Mm -hmm. And so we serve as an advisor to your battalion commander. And every NBC NCO, which was my title, I was the NBC NCO, you have a, a NBC officer. So a nuclear, biological, and chemical officer. And your officers are college educated, and they're looked more as like upper management. And then your enlisted are going to be more like your frontline workers, if you're talking about corporate structure. Well, the NBC NCO in my battalion, he was retiring and there wasn't a replacement graduating to come in and take his spot mm -hmm. the way things are working out. It would be at least a year. And so we had like four and a half million dollars worth of equipment in the NBC in our unit that he was in charge of. Mm -hmm. And he felt that I was responsible enough and I did a good enough job that I could fill the officer's billet and for that year until another officer came in. Mm -hmm. And so he put in a recommendation to our battalion commander and sure enough, they went ahead and let me fill that role mm -hmm. and manage that part of our unit and for like over a year. Amazing. And during that time, I, I mean, it's just what, you, you know, in the military, it's like, Hey, you've got to do this. There's not a, you, you can't fail. Like <laughs> the mission has to get done. You know what I'm saying? So it's, so it was like, Hey, you're going to do this. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You know? Mm -hmm. And so at 19, it's like, here, you're, I'm signing off on and in charge of like four point something million worth of gear. Mm -hmm. And I'm running a gas chamber and teaching all these Marines. And, you know, it's a lot of responsibility sure. that's put on your plate at a young age when at a lot of companies, you're maybe like barely in the mail room and they don't even want you running the copy machine. Or, right. or yeah, taking um, an introduction to economics class in some college somewhere with no responsibility other than tests. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, the reason I mentioned that little story, I ended up getting, when the new NBC officer came in, every, I did a really good job, actually. We have what's called the logistical readiness inspection. Mm -hmm. And what I was responsible for, we got like a 96% or something on it. And it was the highest score our, that portion of our unit had had on an LRE to that point. So I got a Navy Achievement Medal and some other stuff. Um, but the whole point is in the military, they're going to give you a lot more responsibility for your age level. Mm -hmm. than most people would be getting elsewhere. Absolutely. So if you're like kind of wandering through life as a man and you're thinking, hey, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. And you go into the military, you're probably going to come out having done things that matter, right? Absolutely. At least in that capacity. And you're going to have built confidence knowing you can get shit done. Mm -hmm. And going to school after the military is way different than going to college out of high school for a lot of people. So like I didn't do my homework in high school. Mm -hmm. So my grades suffered going back as an adult. Now going back, I would do every assignment. I would get a <laughs> yeah. 4.0 guaranteed. That's what I was going to ask. Did, did the military cure you of the, of the procrastination? Yeah. To, to a degree it did. Um, I would say professionally mm -hmm. and like as a student. So I, I got out of the military and then I enrolled in classes, uh, at junior college, but I got, A's and everything. Mm -hmm. I got a C in sociology because I hated it. <laughs> um, at the time, I hated it. Now I actually think I would have done better at it. But when that was the only class I hated. And I got A's and everything else, like one B and a C. But I, I studied, I did all my work, I turned everything in early, you know. And that was completely different than what I would have done had I gone right out of high school. I think I would have carried that procrastination with me. 
Um, so that, that would be the things that I think if somebody's considering going to the military, one, it can become a career and you can actually do, do well. Mm-hmm. You can go to school while you're in, you can become an officer and actually make quite a bit of money, you know, yeah. relative to um, what people maybe think members of the military get paid. So it can be a career, but it can also serve as a, as a segue to help you get things on track yeah. and build self-confidence, obviously, physically and emotionally and all that. I think you can do a lot of growing up. And then from there, you can get out and go to school or go do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, So I think it's a really good transition period for people that maybe don't know what they want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and I think uh, sometimes we forget that, um, you know, uh, males actually are a little slower to uh, actually physically develop. We're not even done growing till we're about 21. So, you know, when you're, when you're literally shipped off to college uh, at, at the age of 18, at least at the stereotypical age, you know, you're, you're, you're still, you're still a kid uh, in some respects. Um, and certainly I think in terms of emotional development, also males do actually typically lag behind uh, women um, in the sense that it does take them a little bit longer to, uh, you know, uh, psychologically and emotionally kind of come into their, their own. So I, I do think, hey, hey, if you're ready at an early age, that's great. And if you're not um, using some sort of transition period, uh, may be a wise idea because the, the challenges, as you point out, you know, like when you go to college, you know, you are evaluated, you know, your grades, it's hard to, hard to undo, undo that. Um, certainly if you want to especially go on to graduate school. Um, right. So uh, you know, I think those are, those are great. Um, you know, uh, different things uh, benefit f- sort of different people. Um, uh, I love to hear a little bit about sort of post-military life, um, and how you, you know, transitioned into getting into the health and fitness industry, how you became a personal trainer, uh, and kind of move towards that direction. So when I got out of the military, I, like I said, I enrolled in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to make minimum wage. So I applied at a car dealership and I started selling cars, mm-hmm. which was actually good experience. Totally you know, ha- sales. Yeah. Yeah. I think doing person to person sales in some capacity, even if you don't want to do it for the rest of your life is really valuable um, because throughout life, I mean, you, you job interview, whatever it is you're doing, you're pursuing a woman, you're selling yourself, Absolutely. you know? And so I think developing that skill, interpersonal skill um, was really valuable. So I did that. Uh, and that was like a year and a half. I sold cars about a year and a half while I got my real estate license. I decided to get my real estate license. Mm-hmm. And while I was getting my real estate license, I ended up getting a job as an assistant to a mortgage broker. Mm-hmm. So I got into finance. Um, and I did that through 2008. And in 2008, when the bottom fell out of the market, real estate finance got absolutely shellacked, mm-hmm. you know, it just got destroyed. And so I went from making a very, very high income from my age to making like 2,500 bucks a month, mm-hmm. which was smaller than my mortgage. Yeah. You know, everything just fell apart. And so I had to call my mortgage company and basically say, Hey, you're going to take this house back. I can't afford it. You know? So 2008 was on, on one hand, it was um, like a reckoning for sure because I wasn't I wasn't taught um, like personal finance and those lessons. My grandmother was very successful, mm-hmm. but it just, I don't know. She just owned a business. She was successful. It, she didn't try to teach me, you know what I mean? Like there was no, there was no lessons about how to manage your money and what to do. And so I think having grown up 
super poor with my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And then my grandmother not wanting to spoil me. And she had a great big farmhouse on the dairy. She drove a black Cadillac. Like we had tons of food and I never wanted for anything when I lived with her, sure. but she also never spoiled me at all. Yeah. Fair enough. Cause she spoiled her own kids and some of them didn't turn out so well. Mm-hmm. And you know, like my dad, what happened to him? So I think she didn't want to do the same thing. Mm. So once I got into finance and started making like really good money, I was buying BMWs and way too big of a house. And mm. I had really big bills, but I could afford to service the bills. So as long as business was good, everything was okay. Right, right. The problem is I became a slave to the debt. Yeah. And so I was working like, I would wake up and work 12 hours every day. Mm-hmm. Saturday, I was working, mm-hmm. you know, Sunday, I wouldn't work, but I was wiped out from the week already. Right. Catching up by then. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's somewhat similar to how you see a lot of Silicon Valley culture where it's like, just work yourself to death to be really successful. Right. It was kind of like that until I was maybe 26, 26, 27. And that's when 2008 happened. Mm -hmm. And then no matter how hard I worked, there was just no money to be made. Right. The bank I worked for went out of business. I switched over to being a rep for AIG. Mm -hmm. They got the government bailout, but they closed down the mortgage division I went to work for. Mm -hmm. And around that time, I, I kept working out since I got out of the, out of the Marine Corps. So like physical fitness was like my, what I like to do, Yeah. but I never contemplated turning that into a career. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one day I was driving by and I saw DS nutrition, which is like a sports nutrition store. Mm-hmm. And I, it said coming soon. So I pulled up and I was like, oh, that's cool. Let me write down the number, you know? And a couple of weeks later they opened up and I got to know the owner in the first couple of weeks they were open. He's from out of town. And so one day I told him, Hey, I see you need a manager. I, I want to manage your store. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, yeah, dude, you got way too much experience. You've made way too much money. I, this is not for you. Yeah. And I told him, I was like, look, I don't care about the money. I'll, I'll make money later. Yeah. I just want to get into that industry. And so I was like, trust me, I'm not going to quit on you. Like we'll, we'll make this successful. And so he said, okay, I'm going to take a risk and you know, I'll hire you. Yeah. So it was like $18 an hour, I think mm-hmm. when I started working for him and then when I started for him, the store did like 15,000 in sales that it was like the third month he was open. Mm-hmm. And then after the first year, I got it to 85,000 a month in sales. And we we're one of the top stores, top stores in the state of California Amazing. and opened some other locations. And then ultimately um, he had an issue with debt to income. He had multiple stores and ended up going out of business. Mm. But so it was a personally owned small chain, kind of like GNC. Right. And that, is what got me out of finance and into some facet of being in, in health and fitness. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I just stayed with it. Yeah. But by the way, it's such a great um, illustration too, of the principle of sometimes you need to take, you know, uh, uh, a, a step backwards to take two steps forward, you know, uh, that you had the humility to take, you know, maybe a lower paying job or just to get your feet wet and make that transition. I think a lot of folks, especially if they're a little bit more on the the traditional path to success, they, they always want the, the prestigious title or the great pay, um, which kind of keeps them in a very narrow track that to your point, you know, may make them uh, unhappy or miserable or even limit their professional success versus I think if you, if you really realize that, that you um, either have a passion for a new path or, or it, it's the future and it's growing and you want to be a part of that, that, you know, you, you may need to sort of take the the, the step of humility, uh, do, do a little bit of kitchen work, uh, as Robert Bly said, and, you know, get your hands dirty, roll up your sleeves. Um, and I I think you did that really well and it probably has behooved you. So, you know, after that experience, how did you decide to kind of do a little bit more of your own thing? 
uh, and get into personal training, body weight, strength. It was like, this is 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And that's around the time that businesses need to start transitioning into capturing online sales Mm -hmm. and that type of stuff. And so I ended up having to learn how to write basic sales copy. I, I instituted email marketing, email automation and all this different stuff for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, set up websites, Shopify, all this, you know, yeah. WordPress, whatever. And so I, so it was kind of like on the job training because I was getting paid, not a lot, but I was getting paid to also figure out how to take this company and get their web-based business going. Mm-hmm. So I, figured that stuff out. And, um, when I eventually moved on from that, I had these skills that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And I'd also made a lot of business contacts, um, throughout the fitness industry from going to like fitness expos and all this different stuff. And so what I ended up doing is handling writing sales copy. Um, so I don't talk about this on social media because it's doesn't matter. It's not like, you know, but I've written for different supplement companies for different fitness personalities. I've written blog posts and things like that, um, email marketing. So that's actually what paid the bills. Mm-hmm. Supplementally to, you know, an important caveat, my wife has a great career mm-hmm. and she works, she works really hard. So when everything fell apart, mm-hmm. my income was so high for my age. She couldn't have, she couldn't afford to keep everything. We had to let the house go. We had, we had to like seriously downgrade. Yeah. But luckily I wasn't, I wasn't having to provide for my entire family based on just my income. So we, we were in a position where thanks to my wife's income, I was able to say, Hey, the pay's not that important. I just want to get into this Mm -hmm. industry. And I was able to take that pay cut and we were okay. I mean, we didn't, couldn't live the exact same lifestyle, but you know, whatever. Um, I ended up having to file bankruptcy on everything and, uh, and, you know, kind of start over. But the most important lesson from all that was you know, we had a 3,600 square foot house, um, in one of the most prestigious neighborhoods in my city. I had like a six series BMW, one of the first ones in my city. My wife had an X5. We had four BMWs at one point Mm. at once, you know, it was super stupid in hindsight. But the reason I mentioned that we we were going out to like the nicest restaurants in town all the time, shopping all the time. And so during the time when I made the most money and financially could kind of do whatever I want, we, we went to Hawaii on a G5 with someone else. I didn't pay for it, but they, we were invited, you know? Yeah. So from kind of living a lifestyle that most people are not quite able to live, right. I was far less happy then mm. than after I filed bankruptcy and lost everything. Wow. Um, because the stress that came with knowing that I, I, I had no choice but to generate at that level to yeah. keep everything going. And it was, my hair started turning gray. I have a lot of gray hair. People probably notice that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Just does that. Yeah, but, but there, there was a lot of stress. And so I think what that taught me was the importance of balance and what really matters. Mm. And so having to start over and rebuild everything, um, it kind of put into perspective to me, if I'm so busy professionally that I can't take an hour, an hour and a half a day mm-hmm. and train then I don't want the success. Like you can keep it. I don't care how much money it is. I, I got, I got up to 220 pounds. So during this time when I was very financially successful, right. I also got fat. Mm. Um, I had a 38 inch waist. So, mm. and I'm the type of person 
like I, no matter how much money I have, I don't want to be a fat slog. Sure. Yeah. Like what good is all the money if you look like shit? Absolutely. You know what I mean? And you feel like crap. And at the end of the day, you're probably trimming years off your life. Sure. Um, so having been financially successful and then having to start over now, these days, I don't measure my success by how much money I make. Mm. I measure it more on the overall quality of everything, yeah. including how much time am I able to dedicate to the things that I want mm. in, in, in fitness pursuits with my kids, how much free time do I have? Yeah. And so I've learned that I'd rather pass something up than give up the ability to balance those things out. So, so I, I guess if somebody's listening, I grew up poor mm. and then even though it was, I had a lot of debt, so I wasn't rich, but I, I wasn't at all rich. I was negative net worth actually. Cause all the, I bought rental properties and a bunch of stupid crap, bad investments, Yeah. but my, my income for several years was really good. So I could float it all right. So I kind of went from poor to being able to buy whatever I want to an extent back to kind of not poor, but right. you know, lower, lower middle-class. And so I can legitimately say that if you're not content where you're at, mm. having a bunch more money is probably not the answer to what's going to make you content. Right. Right. And with that being said, you know, being able to buy the food you want to eat and do the things you want to do within reason, like that's important. I mean, stressing over money is not cool. For sure. Yeah. So I'm not trying to paint some false picture that it's, yeah. you know, that money doesn't matter. But I definitely think that, you know, when you, when you grow up without you, you have this desire to have. Sure. And once you start getting those things, you realize it's not what you thought it would be. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the research supports that there's really this diminishing marginal utility where the more certainly coming out of poverty, it doesn't does money. Does yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, once you get beyond kind of like a, a middle class, maybe even upper middle class, uh, that's appropriate for your, you know, affording a place in your city doesn't do much, especially when it comes to, you know, lifestyle. I, you know, as you know, I, I coach a lot of uh, CEOs and executives and, you know, they're doing great financially, uh, you know, but the, the wear and tear that, that lifestyle can elicit unless you do a lot of self-care and coaching yeah. and basically treat yourself like a professional athlete. Uh, it definitely wears some people down. And I, I, I certainly look at some, some folks, uh, not my clients, uh, cause the ones that, that I work with, I definitely, uh, help them prioritize their health. Um, I'm like, there's, there's no, what's the point of being a, a to your point. Yeah. Like a, a fat, unhealthy, unhappy billionaire. Um, cause what's the point of all that money? If it, cause it certainly, uh, doesn't, doesn't buy health. Um, it can, if you sort of use it wisely, but I think health is wealth, um, and certainly health and life satisfaction, contentment, meaningful relationships as you've developed both in terms of your family and your children. Uh, those are, those are priceless. Um, and it, and it's, I think, uh, I think people have heard that they know that, but when they hear your story and how real and tangible it is to kind of go from rags to riches to a little bit down and, and kind of make your way back. Um, you know, hopefully there's some lessons in there for, for folks, um, you know, that they can live and learn from. Yeah. That's kind of why I figured, you know, to share that. Yeah. Just because a lot of stuff you hear is cliched. Oh, money doesn't buy happiness. Sure. And I think that, you know, like if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever, mm -hmm. if you don't have the foundational hierarchy filled, then yeah, you need to make the money to fill that stuff up. Sure. But once you get past that, like as an example, if I want to eat filet, I'm going to go buy filet. If I want to eat ribeye, I'll go buy a ribeye. Mm. I can eat. I mean, I can't afford to drive any car I want. I'm not going to go buy a Ferrari, <laughs> sure. but I also don't care. Like I don't care at all. Right. You know what I mean? So I think you get to a point where you think, okay, 
to me, it's important to eat the kind of food I want to eat, to live in a safe area for my family, yep. provide for my kids what I want to provide for them. Mm-hmm. But I don't need $400 shoes. Yeah. You know, like, to, and to some people, maybe that's really important to them. Mm-hmm. But I would just caution people to like, depending on where you live, if you make, just as an example, depending where you are in the US, but it, let's say you make 10,000 a month, which is, you know, a good income in most places. Yep. Maybe it's not great in the Bay Area or like Orange <laughs> County, but if you all of a sudden made 20,000 a month, your lifestyle will not change very much. Probably not. It really won't. Maybe you can, oh, instead of Hawaii, I'm going to go to Tahiti. I don't know. Like, yeah. you know what I'm right. saying? Like, so, so once you achieve, achieve a certain amount of success, sacrificing more time and more time for more success, I'm, I'm, I'm way past that. I don't even care anymore. I'd rather go run three miles in the sunshine. <laughs> Absolutely. And pass up some money. You know what I mean? Like I really, yesterday I took my kids to the park and we went and fed ducks and played on the playground equipment. Amazing. You know, if I could have made another 300 bucks now, dude, you can keep the 300 bucks. I don't care. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is absolutely priceless. And, and there's lots of great research uh, that, that supports that as well. Like in terms of, um, I forgot the exact dollar amount, but there were, they, they literally tried to like, um, uh, quantify, like, like having sex more frequently was worth like tens of thousands, uh, basically in, in, uh, the equivalent in terms of the boost in income. Uh, and it was, it was quite a lot actually. So it was like, you can't really replace, you know, basic biological, psychological, social needs that we have with money. Um, and, and there's probably some point at which no amount of money would replace. Yeah. Quality, meaningful connection, physical intimacy, uh, you know, maybe even your kind of spiritual growth as well. Um, Yeah. I think, I think professionally when you're a CEO, so you look at guys like Elon Musk, mm -hmm. they're, obviously the most successful person in history Mm -hmm. of the planet, if you just go by income and maybe even by his mission and what he's doing. But when you talk to people like that, yeah, they need money because they got to eat and pay for their, you know, travel and whatever else they're doing, but they don't care about the money anymore. Mm -hmm. It's about the mission. Right. Right. They wake up every day and they're not excited because they're like, Oh, I went from 190 to $199 billion net worth. Yeah. They're excited because they're like, Oh, I'm changing the world with my business. Yeah. And so I think most CEOs aren't grinding for the dollar necessarily. Mm-hmm. They're, they're grinding for the mission. Yeah. And so that can be super rewarding. You know what I mean? It's kind of like with what I do, it, the cool thing is helping people make a positive change in their lives to their health or whatever. Um, it's not so much about the money. It's about that being gratifying and rewarding. Yeah. And, and so that's what I would, when I was younger, I, I even remember saying multiple times, people are like, oh, what are you going to do when you got the Marines? And I'm like, I don't care. I just want to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I did not care at all. I just looked at the dollars, which is why I went into selling cars and real estate finance and all that. And now that I'm a little older and wiser, mm-hmm. I actually provided I can take care of my family. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at money last. Yeah. Like, what am I going to be doing all day with my time? And if it's not something I really want to do, I don't want to do it at all. Right. That's such a healthy so, yeah. prioritization, I think. And, and the nice thing is, you know, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive as well. I think if you're prioritizing health, family, um, you know, other kind of core values, you can figure out a way to, uh, you know, make money that, that is aligned with that goal. Or a lot of right. CEOs that I know, they, they, they care about money insofar as it's a scorecard, right? Or a scoreboard in, in the sense that they're deeply mission driven, but they do want obviously their businesses to grow because it helps support their mission, obviously helps feed the families of their employees, et cetera. Uh, but it's, it's, it's instrumental to the mission. It's not, uh, it doesn't sort of supplant or, or replace it. Right. Um, it's like, if you're, it's a way to measure how well you're doing, because 
Exactly. Customers don't give you money when you don't do a good job. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, we're, we're looking at these, it's a metric you can use and say, hey, we're successful because, and a lot of good companies, they maybe, maybe have like a employee satisfaction and all that kind of stuff too. They want the, you know, but good companies, I think they realize that the better they take care of their team and the more people love the company, mm-hmm. the easier it's going to be for that to flow outward to the customer. Yeah. Right. So I think it's, you know, that's the kind of place you want to work, but yeah, definitely. I'm not downplaying the importance of money because it, it's validation that you're doing a good job, sure. but it's just something where I think I've learned throughout my life that you, you want to balance money as one portion of what's important to you. Not Cause when you die, you really can't take it with, you can leave it to your kids. Yeah. Right. But you can't take it with you. Absolutely.